Hello, everybody. This week is Parashas Teruma, and we're going to continue talking about the halachas of the TLC Dayan for bread. And in Mirza Shem, next week, we will learn the halachas of Purim, Shleich Manas, and Parashas Zahar. The TLC Dayan must be done using a cup or any other such vessel. So obviously, a real cup is the ideal Kelly for but if nothing else is available, you can use a plastic disposable cup as well. If all you have is a water bottle, you can use that as well. You can even use a water bottle after you have drunk from it because drinking doesn't invalidate the water. You can't use other liquids though, such as juice or even flavored water. Once it's been flavored or been colored, it can't be used for nitalcidine. If all you have is a vessel which has some kind of a spout, like for example, let's say all you have is a measuring cup which has a notch on the rim to pour through, so you can use that, but you have to pour through the notch. Uh, same thing would apply if you had any kind of vessel that has a, a nick, a ch- it's chipped off on the top. So you, have, you can use it, but you have to pour through that place where the chip is. Same goes if you want to use a canteen, which has a spout located in the middle of the canteen. So you can use it because you pour through the spout. If a cup, the cup that you have has a hole or it is cracked, that's a problem. If the cup is metal or plastic and beneath the hole or crack, like let's say, for example, the hole, the, I'm sorry, the hole or the crack starts halfway up in the cup, so below that hole or crack, the, hole, the cup can still hold about three ounces of water, which is not that much. It's about half of a typical plastic disposable cup, half that amount. So if it can hold that much, it can be used. But otherwise, or if it's made out of glass and it's cracked, it should not be used for an diet. If you don't have any vessel at all and you're stuck and you want to eat bread, that's problematic. So if you are at a body of water, like a lake or the ocean, you can actually dip your hands into the water and make a different bracha, al-tevilas yadayim. If that's not an option and all there is available is a sink, you, that doesn't work. You can't, like uh, some people think, you can like just open the tap and put your hands under it. That doesn't work for the yadayim for bread. You can do that for the yadayim in the morning if you don't have a keli or you want to just, for the bathroom, certainly you can do that. But for bread, that doesn't work. So if you're t- actually stuck and you have no way to wash your hands, there's no water or vessel available, then you can wrap your hands in a cloth and, or, a, or a napkin and eat and don't touch the bread. But this is only allowed under two conditions. Number one, there is no water available for the next 72 minutes. For example, if you're driving or more accurately, you're being driven unless you're on the bus. And there is no, she's not going to stop for the next 72 minutes. Or if you're on the road and there's no rest stop for another hour or so, so you don't have to wait. So then you're allowed to just um, eat with your hands wrapped. And even there, you should only do that if you don't have anything else to eat and you, you need to eat. And obviously with children, you can even be more lenient in this regard. But if you're on the road and you know there's going to be a rest stop in a half hour, you are obligated to wait until you get there, and then you can wash, find a cup there, and wash there. Any water can be used, even if someone touched the water. Like you had filled up a cup for an Intelsi Dime and someone stuck their hands into it, you still could use that water, even though that person hasn't washed their hands yet. You don't have to spill out the water. It can be used for an Atila. 
If the water was used, though, for a different purpose, let's say that water was actually used to wash off a fruit, someone uh, put an apple into it and washed it off, you can't use it for an atelsidam. So once water has been used for a purpose, other than just drinking, you can't use it for an atelsidam. If the only place available to wash your hands is the bathroom, that's fine. But here's what you should do. You should wash in the bathroom, not dry your hands, and then go outside the bathroom, rub your hands together, make the brachal, and then dry them. So this is what typically a person will do, let's say, when he's on a plane, you're on a plane, so you go to the bathroom there, you wash your hands there, and then you can go out, walk, rub your hands together, make the bracha, and then dry them. In, outside of a plane, typically in most public places, there's almost always a water fountain near the bathroom, so you can usually do the daim there, take the water from there and pour it into there, which is more ideal than, having, than washing in the bathroom, which isn't the most l'chathchila thing to do. But on a plane, obviously, that's not an option. If you're going on a trip and are worried that you're not going to have an ability to wash your hands and you want to bring a sandwich along or you want your kids to bring sandwiches along, I remember as kids we thought you can wash your hands in the morning and have it mined for the whole day, but that actually doesn't work. To be clear, it, it could work, but you would have to wear gloves the whole day, so it's not a very practical solution. If you went to the bathroom and are planning to wash for bread right after, right, so just before you start your Suda Shabbos, you went to the bathroom and now you have to go and wash. So this is a little bit of an issue. Why? Because you're going to wash your hands for the bathroom, but then you want to wash your hands again and make the bracha volunteers you die and you can't do that because your hands are already clean. So how do you wash for the bathroom and wash for the daim in a way that you'd be able to make the bracha there is two options, two ways you could do this. So one way is that after you come out of the bathroom, when you're washing your hands for the bathroom, so that you can say yatsar, don't use a cup. Just wash your hands directly from the faucet, make it ashri yatsar, dry your hands off, and then you can proceed as normal and wash for bread with a cup and with a bracha. Because your first washing of your hands wasn't the halachic washing, it was just straight from the tap. So that's one option. Two, you can combine it, and this is how you combine it. Wash your hands for the bathroom, have in mind that you're doing it for bread too, and then do the following. Make an Asher Yatsar, don't dry your hands, rub your hands together, then make an Anastil Sidaim, and then dry them. So the order is you wash your hands, make an Asher Yatsar, rub your hands together, make an Anastil Sidaim, and then you dry them. So there are two ways that this can be done. One way is that you you just don't use a cup when you're washing your hands. The first time for the bathroom, you make the ashiyat to dry your hands and then wash again with a cup. And the second way is to combine it, wash your hands, have a mind for bread, make an ashiyat, don't dry your hands, rub them together, make an alantar to dime, and then dry them. We have already mentioned that if you go to the bathroom during the suda for more than just urinating, then, and you were planning on continuing to eat bread, or you went to help a child in the bathroom, same idea, you have to wash again with the bracha of Alam Shazidayim before you continue eating bread. Of course, if you don't want to eat bread, you're just eating whatever else there is, then that's not an issue. But if you do want to continue eating bread, then you need to wash your hands again with the bracha of Alam Shazidayim. The same applies uh, if you have and other, other forms of Hesachadat, like if you started eating bread in one place and then you walked somewhere else, walking also constitutes a Hesachadat, and when you get to the new place, you do need to wash your hands again. Then you don't do it with a bracha, but you should wash your hands. So let's say, for example, you, um, 
ate at home, and then you went for a Shevet Brachas dessert somewhere else, and they want you to eat bread so that you can be part of their uh, Shevet Brachas. So you would need to wash your hands again. Even though you're benching there, you need to wash your hands again, even though you wash at home. Because walking is constitutes a Hesachadat, and would require you to wash again. The Parsha and Parsha's Tula describes how the Mishkan and all its vessels were designed and built. They were awesomely beautiful. They were detailed and they were expensive. They were formed from gold, silver, other precious metals, materials, jewels. There was amazing craftsmanship in every part of production, creating something unique, outstanding. Did anyone get to see this beauty? So, not really. The vessels were contained within the Mishkan, which was only accessed by a few kahanim who had a job of doing that particular avayda. Namely, two kahanim took care of the menorah, one in the morning and one in the evening. Two kahanim took, brought ketires on the mizbeach, one in the morning, one in the evening. So four kahanim a day entered, and otherwise no one else was really allowed in. You weren't allowed to walk into the Mishkan for just to walk in. The outside of the Mishkan was fully covered by the simplest material used in the building, simple leather skins of goats, that being the hardiest and the most protective, but you couldn't really see much of the Mishkan. The Aran HaKadosh and the Kadesh HaKadoshim, which was, that, you know, was made out of gold and the Kruvim, and in the second, in the, sorry, first place at Mikdash, it was uh, beautifully decorated with um, gold carvings and all kinds of things. It wasn't viewed at all. Even the Kayan Gadol who entered on Yom Kippur didn't look around. For the record, it didn't have any windows either, so there was no light source there. You, pr- you probably couldn't really see anything. The Gemara tells us that when repairs were needed in the Kedesh HaKadoshim, they had this special contraption, which was like a box with one side open, and they lowered it from the ceiling. There was an attic above the Kedesh HaKadoshim with a, with a skylight, and they lowered a person, the craftsman, through it, so that he would only see the part he was working on, so that he doesn't look at the rest of the Kedusha Kedushim. We wanted to prevent him from looking at the rest of the Kedusha Kedushim, because looking would be disrespectful and po- possibly a, a kind of me'ula almost, a kind of stealing from the base of Mikdash. So we prevented that. So no one looked at it. It wasn't meant to be looked at. So what exactly does this beauty mean? Rashi, in this parasha, brings a medrash which, which sheds some light on this. On the Pasik which commands us to create that covering of goatskin that covered the whole Mishkan, the Medrash says that the Torah is teaching us teaching us a life value. A person should value and protect something which is beautiful. The Torah is teaching us a life value. What is this value? Treat beautiful things with respect. Value them. Cherish them. Protect them cover them up. This is fascinating. Now, the truth is, we have to step back for a moment and try to understand what's going on here by the Mishkan. Why would the holiest place on earth, the place where HaKadosh Baruch Hu Shechina rests, the place where a person can reach the highest levels of Kedusha and Tahara, why is it so physically beautiful? Doesn't that seem counterintuitive? Shouldn't it be a place devoid of Gashmias? Shouldn't it be like a kind of white room uh, with no color, just solely focused on Ruchnias? How does all this physicality bring greater Kedusha to the world? Now, you might think 
that it's simply respectful to Hashem, the king of all kings, the ruler of the world, and this is how we demonstrate our tremendous honor and respect and awe of his greatness. In other words, beautiful things essentially pull a person away from Ruchnius, but for Kedusha, it's appropriate to beautify it, and that's a Kedusha Hashem. Now, we can't disagree with that, because essentially it's true, but there is something flawed in this reasoning. Because if beauty is something far from Ruchnius, deeply entrenched into Gashmias, how could that possibly be appropriate for that to be used to honor Hashem? Putting that aside for a moment, we see that the Medrash is actually teaching us the opposite. Hashem wants us to value beautiful things. He's trying to teach us that with the Mishkan. He wants us to cherish them, protect them by hiding them. Beauty is clearly a value for us as well. And so much so that the Mishkan and all its holiness comes to teach us this basic concept. What's the importance of it? So we all know beautiful things inspire us. Man-made beautiful things, beautiful architecture, artwork, craftsmanship, invoke a certain awe and appreciation. They, they bring out a ruchniyistic aspect to ourselves. They elevate us. The beauty in the world floors us. Beauty is perfection, and perfection is a hallmark of Hashem's work. But we also know that beauty can have the exact opposite effect. It can bring a person to the lowest level, to the worst of errors, bring out the most terrible character traits. Beauty has caused jealousy to the point of murder. It causes people to desire things that they can't have and shouldn't be looking at. Sinking someone, oneself into beauty for its own sake is the most physical act possible, the furthest from Ruchnius. <clears throat> but it's precisely because beauty has so much holy potential that separating it from Ruchnius makes it the greatest force of Tumah. We see in the Gemara a fascinating thing. The Gemara talks about the four most beautiful women that ever lived. Arban, Nashim, Mephefiyah, Hayyabayalam. There are four beautiful women that ever lived. The final one named is Esther Hamalka. But then the Gemara says, she, that's one opinion that she was the most beautiful person in the world, but according to some opinions, Esther was pale. And according to those opinions, you know who the most beautiful, the fourth most beautiful woman in the world was? It was none other than Vashti. Vashti. So here we have two women who utilize their beauty for the radical, extreme, opposite purpose. Esther covered her beauty, acted with extreme tzniyas, and she demonstrated tzniyas so much so that she becomes the paradigm for modesty. She's the paradigm for tzniyas. Vashti, according to the Gemara, was perfectly okay coming into a ballroom crowded with drunken men, unclothed. And the only reason she refused was because she was afflicted with leprosy or a tail. That's the epitome of Tummah. And that's what's, what beauty is all about. Either it's valued, we cherish it, and we protect it. And then it's a tremendous force for the good. It can inspire. It can bring one close to Hashem. But if it's exposed, it devalues it, and it becomes utilized solely for its physical appeal, 
you thereby detach it from any spirituality and it becomes the strongest force for evil. The Mishkan beauty demonstrates to us that beauty is to be utilized to serve Hashem. And it can be utilized to serve Hashem in the highest level possible in the world, in the Mishkan itself. But only when it's cherished and protected and identified as the perfection of Hashem's creation. The core of Tznius isn't hiding. It's protecting. It's valuing. It's cherishing. Anything which is merely an object is treated like an object and can be used and abused at whim. But something which is not an object, it has a soul, it has depth, it has deep value and meaning, and it's utilized and appreciated according to that. And the external only accentuates and adorns the inner greatness. The Torah encourages us to be beautiful, to have beautiful things, to create things of beauty, and most of all to appreciate beauty. But the Torah teaches us how to value it and protect it and cherish it. And if we do that, it's a, a vehicle to become close to Hashem. But if we just strip that away and we just use it for its physical appeal alone, it has the extreme opposite effect. It drives us away. Have a good night and a good Shabbos.